For our scripture reading now, we turn to 2 Samuel. It's been a few months since we pressed pause at the end of 1 Samuel. I wonder if your Bible still falls open naturally to that page. If you're swiping on a device, you are robbed of that sense of satisfaction. I find the bookmark here in my pulpit Bible is right where I left it. So this morning we turn to 2 Samuel. Maybe you've heard of the theater company that's known as the Reduced Shakespeare Company. They made a name for themselves. They literally made a name for themselves by performing entire works of William Shakespeare on stage, boiled down to a few minutes each. So this morning, let's do a little reduced Samuel. This morning, we're getting back to 2 Samuel. This summer, we finished 1 Samuel. So this morning, we're picking up where we left off. In the interest of review, here's 1 Samuel in a nutshell. Remember when the book opened, Israel was still in that period that we call the period of the judges. They didn't have a king yet. When the book opens, Samuel is born. And it's going to turn out that Samuel is destined to be the last of those judges. It's a season in Israel's history when they are troubled by idolatry within and by the Philistines on their border. Samuel proves a blessing to the people. He leads them. He leads them in truth. He leads them in worship. He leads them to victory. Sadly, they go ahead and they ask for a king anyway. Sadly, Israel says, we want to be just like the nations around us. Never a good sign. So God gives them one. God gives them a king, and their first king is Saul the Benjaminite. And fittingly... Saul turns out to be just what they asked for. Saul turns out to be a king just like the other nations had. He looked the part, but sadly he lacked the heart for that role. Twice in 1 Samuel, Saul goes against the word of God in such a way as to make it very clear that he doesn't have devotion to God in his heart, not the devotion that kingship calls for. And so God provides... David to follow him, and at that point, the whole storyline of 1 Samuel becomes a tale of two kingships. The whole storyline of 1 Samuel can be summed up in what God says to Saul through Samuel in chapter 13, where Samuel says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. And even Samuel, a few chapters later, remember Samuel has to, has to learn from God about what to expect and how to interpret what he sees, because Samuel goes to the household of one Jesse and looks upon son after son, and each of them looks so impressive, and Samuel's thinking, oh, this one's got to be the man that God has in mind to be the next king. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. 
but the Lord looks on the heart. Verses like those that we came across as we made our way that, that wonderfully encapsulated the unfolding story. And sure enough, the rest of 1 Samuel is the storyline of Saul falling, Saul unraveling, and all the while David rising, David shining. The rest of 1 Samuel becomes Saul hunting David, the Lord protecting David from Saul, and not just from Saul, it seems from everyone else, and at times even from David's own worst inclination, because David doesn't shine all the time. Until the end, the end of 1 Samuel, the word of the Lord is fulfilled. Israel is defeated in battle by the Philistines. Saul and his sons perish on the field of that battle, including David's dear friend Jonathan, so that in the end, David's the one who's left standing, left standing in order to reign. So there you have it, reduced Samuel, the whole of 1 Samuel in just a few minutes. 2 Samuel picks up right there. At this point, David is still in that city that the Philistines had given him. David and his men are still in the city of Ziklag. Remember, not too long ago, David and his own men had to go on a recovery mission of their own against some Amalekites. 2 Samuel picks up right there. David gets word about Israel's defeat and Saul's death and Jonathan's death as well. And it's a powerful moment. We can say it's a revealing moment. I expect you've found this to be true in your own experience. I know I have in mind. I found it to be the case that when you get big news, especially if it's bad news, it can feel a little bit like you're being watched. It can feel a little bit like eyes are on you to see how you respond. Now, that's also true when the news is good, but especially so when it's not. Especially so when the news is devastating. Because it is a a powerful moment. It is a revealing moment. The way you respond, the way you handle it, especially... If in that moment you have not had a chance to prepare yourself and to compose yourself, what comes out of you in that moment can say a whole lot about what's inside you and who you are. Don't worry, I'm not going to say much about 9-11 this morning. That would be a bit much. But I'll just mention, there is that famous footage of Andy Card leaning over to President Bush in that Florida classroom and whispering in his ear and telling him, giving him the news, it must have been one of those moments when it feels like you're being watched. And what comes out of you, what shows, is going to reveal to some degree what's inside you and who you are. It must have been one of those moments when it feels like there are certain things that people need to see in you, and it's a kind of service that you render in that moment that you allow them to see it. Even though nobody else knew in that moment on 9-11, it wouldn't be long before the world would know. It wouldn't be long before the world would see eyes would be on him. 
And maybe you felt that way in your own way when you got that phone call or that email or that diagnosis or somebody leaned over to you in a public setting and whispered something in your ear. It matters how you respond because eyes are on you. Well, here, 2 Samuel 1, David gets the news, and it's momentous, and it's awful, and we can say, eyes were on David. We can say it mattered greatly how David responded, what showed, what came out of him, and we can say that what came out of him was integrity and holy grief and even a willingness, a determination to press on into the future. In other words, what came out of him, what showed that day and in the days that followed was just what the people of God needed to see in the one who would be their king. And that itself became a kind of kingly service that David rendered from the outset. And there are all kinds of valuable lessons that we can learn from that. So let's take a look at what we've got here. I'll read through. I'm going to explain just a few things as we go, and then we'll take a step back and think about lessons to learn. I'll read chapter 1. We are going to carry over a little bit, as you can see in your bulletin, into chapter 2, the first seven verses there. So let me read for us. After the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now pause there. This is a lie, the story that this man is telling David. Flash back to the end of 1 Samuel. How did Saul actually die? This man didn't kill him. Saul killed himself. Saul ended his own life after the Philistines wounded him badly. 1 Samuel 31 verse 3 says, Saul was badly wounded by the archers. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. That's how it actually happened. That's how Saul actually died. This guy's lying. And no doubt he's lying. He's come up with this story because he thinks that David will be pleased. 
He thinks that this will be his way to ingratiate himself to the new king. It doesn't say that explicitly, but it's not hard to read between the lines. In any case, apparently David believes him, and clearly David is not pleased. Let's keep going. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So clearly, David was not pleased. This man's expectations in telling David this tale were turned on their head. So that takes us down to verse 16. Then what follows, picking up at verse 17, what follows is one of David's songs. We've already gotten to know David as a man of song. First Samuel told us that he was a gifted instrumentalist. The book of Psalms tells us that he was a gifted poet. Well, here's one of his songs. Here's one of his poems. Look at verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, Jonathan, beloved and lovely, In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. So that's David's lamentation. Takes us through to the end of chapter 1. And then what follows, beginning at at chapter 2... What follows is David pressing on into the future. It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. There Paul says, it's true, we grieve, we who know God, but we do not grieve without hope. We do not grieve 
as if there were no future for us. Well, here David's grieving, and rightly so, and he has expressed it in lamentation, but then he knows it's time to press on into the future because there is a future for the people of God. And not only that, but he knows that in a sense he is that future now. And so he knows that the time to hide out among the Philistines is over. It's time to go home. It's time to go home for the calling that God has for him there. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul... David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So that's what unfolds here in the opening chapter of 2 Samuel and then on into chapter 2. That's how David responds when he gets the news and in the days that followed. That's how David handled it. And no question, it was a fine line that David was walking in the way that he responded to this. Because on the one hand, he's got to make it clear that Saul dying like this This is not what David wanted, certainly not something that he contributed to or promoted or prayed for as a kind of power grab. On the other hand, it's also clear that when Saul dies, God's purpose for David, God's purpose that he become king is being realized. And David cannot shrink back from that now. So it was a fine line that David was walking, and he walked it well. Here in these opening verses of 2 Samuel, David hit all the right notes. And it was, as I said, a kind of service that he rendered to the people, that they could see that he was this kind of man. Now, what do we learn from all this? What what can we take? What lessons can we glean from what we've seen unfolding here? I want to highlight three lessons in particular. This first one we'll call pleasing the Christ. I'll give you little labels for each of the three. We'll call this one pleasing the Christ, pleasing the anointed one. 
Because one lesson that we can learn here from the way David responds to this guy who comes to him from the battle, the lesson is this. The way you please after a man after God's own heart is by showing yourself to be that way too. The way you please a man after God's own heart is by showing yourself to be that way too. That guy at the beginning of the chapter, that guy who came to David and lied to him and said, I killed Saul, he must have thought that David would love him for it. He must have thought, well, this will be my way to curry favor with the new king. I'll tell him that I killed Saul. And and I'll tell him that it was so honorable the way it unfolded and that I was just being merciful. I'll tell him that I killed Saul and I'll even bring him the crown to put on his head now. I'll be the one who single-handedly ushers in this age of glory. Including glory for David. Or at least that's how I will tell the tale. David will be so pleased. But it was a fatal misreading of what would please him. Apparently David believed his lie. Believed him when he said, I killed Saul. And that's exactly what David himself could never bring himself to do. Remember we saw that several times in 1 Samuel. David held back his hand. Because he was persuaded it was wicked and worthy of death to strike down the Lord's anointed one. And for all of Saul's faults, that's what he still was there in the field of battle on Mount Gilboa. So no, David wasn't pleased. To put it positively, what would have pleased David was for the people around him and the people who approached him to show that they were motivated the way he was to honor God. To show that they were committed the way he was to obeying God, including having a proper respect for the one who was the anointed of God. This guy got David all wrong. David was the kind of man who could say, and he says this in Psalm 16. He says this, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Psalm 16. That's the kind of man David was. That's where his delight was to be found, his good pleasure. This man in 2 Samuel 1, he read David all wrong. And for me, it it brought to mind what Jesus says in Matthew 7. That's why I read it for us earlier in our service. What Jesus says in Matthew 7 about people who are going to think that he's going to be pleased with them. People who are going to think that he's going to be so impressed with their record of service that they can set before him, their list of deeds. What did we hear earlier in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7. It'll be this jarring contrast between the honor and good pleasure that they'll be expecting on the one hand and the judgment that they'll receive on the other. 
it'll turn out to be a fatal misreading of what pleases Jesus. Jesus is somebody who loves his Father's will. Well, then, what pleases him, what satisfies him, is when we show ourselves to be people just like that. Or to borrow the language of 1 Samuel, we can say that Jesus is a man after God's own heart. He is the God-man after God's own heart. Well, then, what pleases him, what satisfies him, is when we show ourselves to be animated by that same spirit. And you can come up with a long list of things you've done that might sound holy and impressive. Maybe the list is a lie. Like the guy in 2 Samuel 1 who said, I killed Saul and here's how it went down. Maybe the list is true. And there are things that you've actually done. And you even did them in Jesus' name. You wrapped them up with a bright red bow of self-deceiving Christian piety. But what pleases Christ is when we show ourselves to be men and women after God's own heart, just like himself. So, brothers and sisters, let this be a reminder for us today. We want to be a people who are pleasing to Christ. And thankfully, that good work is underway. He's made us to be that kind of people, and we want to grow and flourish and make headway. We want to be a people who are pleasing to Christ. Well, we've got to let Christ say what pleases him. We don't have the place, we don't have the prerogative to decide for ourselves what pleases Jesus. He gets to say. And what he has said is that what pleases him is devotion to his Father's will. Not any old thing that we can come up with. Just because we did it in his name, what pleases Jesus is devotion to his Father's will. And it's here in this book, the Bible, that we find that will revealed. May we be men and women like that, just as he is. Pleasing the Christ as those who are called Christians. So that's our first lesson to take here. Here's a second This one I'll call holy grief. Holy grief. It's good for us to take to heart David's lamentation there that takes up a good bit of the end of chapter 1. David pours out his grief over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. And no question, the language is somewhat exalted, isn't it? The way he talks about them, the way he remembers them and their relationship. And in fact, it might even seem strange to us to have Saul and Jonathan lamented together like this. And I say that because we know very well from 1 Samuel just how terribly different those two men were, father and son. Saul descended into the deepest, darkest depths of sin and envy and rage, whereas Jonathan held fast to David like a brother. But there is nothing wrong and there is nothing false about remembering people at their best and at their closest. So here in this lamentation of David, there's no denying what Saul became and how he died. And there's no denying here 
that Saul and Jonathan were separated by a vast chasm when it came to David, but there is nothing wrong and there's nothing false with remembering people at their best and recalling their lives at their highest points. Not only was David right to grieve, but we can say he was in the right to grieve like this in the things that he had to say. And not only that, but notice this as well. This struck me again as I was looking back over the poem that David pens here. It's pure grief. The whole poem. Now, David was not a hopeless man, and we'll get to that in just a minute with our, our third lesson. But for the purpose of this poem... It's, it's grief, it's lamentation from start to finish. It starts with, your glory is slain, and it ends with, how the mighty have fallen, and there's no comfort anywhere in the middle about the future. All that to say, it's okay for us, as the people of God, as a people of hope, to put our own grief into words in which our Christian hope is not expressed every single time. It's okay for us to pour ourselves out in a given moment, whether it's in poetry or in prayer, in a way that is grief from start to finish. That doesn't mean that you're hopeless. It just means that we have that kind of freedom in expressing ourselves to God And to one another. Because God knows us. And in the church we can know one another too. It just means you don't have to find a way to work your hope in every single time. God is still honored. Because it's still true the way that you've expressed yourself. And he knows the heart. God knows the hopeful broken heart. That gives rise to your words. Holy grief. David is a model for us here. So the first lesson was pleasing the Christ. The second was holy grief. Here's a third and final one, and we'll call it why courage. We'll call this one why courage. And here I want to point you to the very last verse in our passage this morning, which is chapter 2, verse 7, what David says to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And you remember that story in 1 Samuel? One of Saul's great moments was leading the people in victory over the Ammonites when the Ammonites were threatening the people of Jabesh-Gilead on the other side of the Jordan River. And, And so when Saul dies the way he does, and his body is dishonored in the way it was by the Philistines. Sure enough, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who took it upon themselves to go and get Saul's body and pay him the honor he was due. Those men who, who remembered what he'd done and who felt a sense of indebtedness because of what he'd done. So here in chapter 2, David is addressing the people of that place. 
and saying, I, I've heard what you've done to honor Saul in his death. And then look at verse 7. The last thing he says to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, verse 7. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. That's verse 7. So there's a summons to courage, right? Let your hands be strong and be valiant. So these folks have, have work to do. They have a calling. They've got service to render, and they can't shrink back from it now. So it's a summons to courage. And what I love about what David says to them is that he gives them reasons to be courageous like that. He says two things to them that back up the summons to courage. He says two things to them, both of which are vital for them to hear. The first thing that he says to them is, Saul, your Lord, is dead. Obviously, they know that. They were the ones who went to care for his body. Saul, your Lord, is dead. That's his way of saying, this is a moment that's going to require courage of you. That's his way of saying, we all know that's what's happened. That's where things stand. He's saying, the one who once delivered you from the Ammonites all those years ago, the one whom God made ruler of his people in order to protect his people from their enemies, he's dead. And he's not coming back. He's gone. He's not going to be around to deliver you anymore, to protect you anymore the way he once did. So there is that candid acknowledgement of the current state of affairs. That's where things stand. So, yes, this is a moment that's going to require courage of them. They're going to have to take a deep breath and face the future, and it's going to be a future without the man who once rescued them and ruled them. So there is that. David says that to them, but then notice the second thing that he says right after that. What he says to them, in effect, is there's solid ground for courage now. There's good reason for it. There's good reason for you to stride into the future trusting God. And that reason is the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. In other words, yes, it's true. Saul is gone, but God has provided. David can say, in effect, God has provided me and one of your fellow tribes has recognized it. Judah has made me their king. So you see, both of these things matter that David says to them here. The first is the need for courage. Saul's dead. So you're going to have to be courageous now. The second is the ground for courage. God has provided. God has provided me so that there's ground for courage now. And that is such a perfect pair. The need for courage because of the trial, the loss that God has brought to pass, and the ground for courage because of the provision that God has made in order to meet the trial, in order to meet the moment. What a perfect pair. And brothers and sisters, that's our pair. Those same two realities in our lives right now in 2021. So first, yes, there is 
the need for courage today. These are trying times. Wearisome times. Whether it's the COVID pandemic with all of its stresses and you start to wonder if we're ever going to be free from those stresses Or it's yesterday's anniversary of the worst national day of our lifetime. And then that anniversary becomes a reminder that there are people in the world today who still want to do terrible things. Or it's just the steady drumbeat of daily discouragements and doubts because we're living in a world like this. We can be candid. That's where things stand today. That's our current moment. In some ways, that's our perennial moment. And so here, on September the 12th, 2021, the summons is, yes, let your hands be strong and be valiant. You're going to have to be. But then second, thankfully, there's also the ground for courage. We're going to have to be strong and valiant. And you know what? We can be because we've got a king. And that king is great David's greater son. That king is King Jesus. So you see how this touches down in our lives. Today, this week. Christian, you're going to have to be courageous this week. And you can be. Because you've got a king. The need for courage. And the ground for courage. On the one hand, you can honestly size up where things stand today, including the things that you may feel like you lack in terms of earthly advantages and earthly resources, maybe things that have been taken from you, maybe even people who have been taken from you. On the other hand, there is one person who will never be taken from you. Christian, you have a king. And that king is King Jesus. And not only that, but he is a king who has been recognized. He's been crowned so that you're not out of your mind to bend the knee before him. He's been crowned by his heavenly father. And now he's been recognized and hailed by a worldwide church around the world and throughout the ages. You are not crazy to bend the knee before him. And to find yourself literally encouraged by the king that he is. So, brothers and sisters, let's go into a new week like that. Yes, let your hands be strong and be valiant. The moment requires it. And we can be. Because King Jesus leads the way. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we bow before you now. And we confess that we do tremble when we consider our current moment and the courage it calls for. But we come to you with that trembling and find ourselves encouraged after all. Because you went first down into the valley and then back up into life. And now you reign in life at the Father's right hand. 
We want to please you. By your grace, you've made that our desire. And we know what pleases you. It's when we show ourselves to be devoted to the Father's will, just as you were and are. Jesus continued to make us that kind of people. Who honor you, who please you, even in our grief, we thank you for the freedom that's ours as the children of God to pour ourselves out to God in holy grief and lamentation. And here, too, we say thank you, Jesus, for leading the way, for with loud cries and tears, you once poured yourself out to God as well. So we fix our eyes on you, we fix our faith on you, and we pray in your name. Amen.